the reason why we publish a new book that is more, it's not as focused on a specific channel or tactic, but it's kind of more an overall, a kind of updated startup sales playbook, right? It's called the 2020 Startup Sales Playbook. Um, we'd written a startup sales book the very first year that we started, and it felt like a lot had happened over the past five to six years. The world of selling, the world of startup selling had changed quite dramatically. So we wanted to do an update, and we wanted to do something that we'd never done before, which is um, invite a bunch of partners that we've built strong relationship with over the last couple of years and that had proven themselves to be just great teachers and people and companies and organizations that had a lot of skill and knowledge and have them invite them to actually contribute to the book. Hi, welcome to the SaaS Revolution Show, brought to you by SaaS.com. I'm your host, Alex Thuma, and on this week's episode, I talk with Steli Efti, CEO and co-founder of Close, about his new book on early stage selling techniques for startups. If you've been in the SaaS space for a few years, you've surely come across Steli Efti at a conference somewhere, maybe even SaaS.com. His signature talks, loud, filled with equal measure cursing and valuable lessons for anyone who does selling, are always unmissable. Steli moved to the US 14 years ago with a one-way ticket and a dream to change the world. He didn't quite achieve that with the first company started in Palo Alto, but he's certainly making waves with his second close. Started back in January 2013 to make salespeople more productive, it only recently got the keys for its comfortable dot-com home. That itself a fascinating story of grit and hustle on Steli's part, which he shares on his second appearance on the SaaS Revolution show. Listen on to here. Why books have become such a pivotal part of Close's success? So books have been a really, a really useful tool for us because we have published an insane amount of content over the last six years, um, and that content really is the foundation of which the company was built. That content is why we've built a really big audience and an audience that really cared about us and our brand. And that audience translated into people that wanted to purchase the product and got a lot of success with it and then pulled a lot of other people. So, so our philosophy has been very traditional in like, let's out-teach our competition versus, you know, spend them in ads. And we had a unique point of view that, that really resonated. And because we have so much content, for new people that discover us, it's sometimes really hard to organize that content, consume it, because it's just overwhelming. So books have been always a way for us to organize our content, to... Uh, clean it up to focus it on specific topics and allow people that want to learn from us to choose what they want to focus on, what currently is the biggest challenge that they have and really get uh, hyper-focused information and very tactical advice about that topic in a couple of hours of reading. A fundamental thing about early stage selling. One of the really important things that that, that we see that, that startups struggle with is just to have a very pragmatic approach to selling, right? So if you don't have a background in sales, don't think that this is some magical thing that you cannot know anything about and that the way for you to approach it is just to hire people that have a background in that. If you're a founder, it doesn't matter if you're an engineering background, if you're a designer, you are a salesperson, right? You have to sell your product. You'll have to sell people to come and join work for you. You'll have to sell people to give you money to fund your dreams. You're going to have to sell the idea to customers. It doesn't matter if you sell well or not, but you are selling, right? So just get over yourself and don't go, oh, I'm not good at this. You know, just say, I'm not as experienced at this. You don't have to become the world's best salesperson. You just have to learn the ABCs of selling and apply them to what you do. And you're going to have to do that either way. There's no way around this. What is the right model of selling that startups should adopt? The right model is the model of friendly strength. 
right? You want somebody that's friendly, that wants to create value, that wants to help people, that wants to do right, that wants to be honest, but comes from a place of strength, of authority, of clarity, of confidence, right? Think about a great doctor, right? Somebody that's a subject matter expert. You want a great doctor to be somebody that's interested in your health, that's asking all the right questions, that's doing all the tests. You don't want to walk into the office and the doctor prescribes already you know, the medicine without saying hello to you, right? without knowing anything about you. You want somebody that cares about your health. But once they've done all the tests, once they've asked all the questions, once they have a diagnosis, you don't want them to ask and debate. You want them to tell you what to do, right? You don't want somebody that's like, well, you maybe have cancer, but who knows? Cancer is a human concept. Maybe we don't understand it well. And some alternative medicines don't believe in it. And maybe you want to dance or maybe you want to go and take medicine. Or what. You don't want to hear somebody giving you 5,000 options. You're not a medical professional. Steady will once again grace the stage at SASDOC 19, more than once in fact. He'll be part of the sales bootcamp, which will run on Monday the 14th. Then he'll give one of the opening keynotes on Tuesday the 15th about seven deadly lies founders tell themselves, which prevents them from succeeding and how to stop doing that. Steady will be one of many speakers, uh, around 200 in fact, that will delve into successful sales practices, marketing practices, customer success practices, how to be a better CEO. Uh, in general, uh, there is uh, a whole uh, bunch or a whole ton of content that's all, uh, I guess, kind of like uh, focused around uh, how to uh, you know, get traction, how to grow and how to scale your SaaS business, practical tactical lessons. Uh, there's going to be over 200 speakers, as mentioned, uh, around sort of 4,000 attendees, 4,000 of your peers to rub shoulders with, to speak with in the corridors, to kind of share the war stories. Um, and best practices of how to how to grow your business uh, around 300 plus VCs uh, as of last count uh, that are uh, have their checkbooks uh, ready to meet with exciting new SaaS startups uh, perhaps uh, that could be you uh, so if you're looking to raise you know uh, pre-seed seed series A series B uh, venture debt debt equity uh, we've got you covered uh, it's going to be the place to be in SAS in 2019 and uh, it's all taking place at the RDS uh, in Dublin from October the 14th to the 16th. We'll go tell a lie on the 14th, uh, we're running workshops across Dublin City. Um, so they're going to be great tactical uh, workshops for you to get involved with, with uh, a lot of our speakers acting as mentors, deeper diving into uh, sessions beyond, uh, I guess, the, the 20 to 40 minute talks that they're giving at SASDOC itself. Uh, plus, we'll be uh, having the biggest SAS Expo in Europe uh, this year, uh, 250 plus exhibitors uh, at the Expo Hall at SASDOC 19. Um, and the, the learning, the networking, the fun, uh, you know, doesn't end, you know, during the day, doesn't end at 5 p.m. Uh, you know, join us for the pub crawls, the, the Satstock infamous pub crawls, uh, something on Monday the, the 14th, our welcome parties, our closing parties, uh, all the partner parties and dinners uh, that are happening in the evening in the beautiful city of Dublin. Uh, and uh, and yeah, and as we call it, it's night stock. Uh, so we have Satstock during the day, night stock during the night. Um, this is gonna be a great uh, reunion uh, of all the SAS best friends getting together uh, the SAS universe coming together in Dublin in well, less than two weeks now, so October the 14th to the 16th. few tickets left, get yours at sas.com and uh, yeah, hope to see you there. Now on with the show.
Welcome to the SaaS Revolution Show. For the second time, Steli FD, CEO of Close. Welcome, Steli. Alex, thank you so much for having me. No, it's great to have you back. Actually, it's, uh, well, this is four years running the SaaS Revolution Show now, and I'm pretty sure you're one of the early guests uh, that we had on. So it's been a long time. And I, I remember, actually, there was a lot of there's a lot of f bombs on on that one. Have we got a cleaner Steli today, or uh... it depends completely on the questions you're gonna okay, ask. Fair. So people th- people think I run around cursing all day long like a crazy mad person. It's not true. I'm actually cursing uh, quite rarely. But when I get really passionate, if I get passionate about any topic topic then then it comes out fair enough all right well um steady for those that are in SaaS that are listening that are living under a rock haven't heard of you before tell us who is steady fd <laughs> who is steady fd all right I'll try, I'll try the short version um you know i'm a i am a uh founder um of a SaaS company called close uh you can check it out uh, at close.com it's an inside sales crm that's focused on small and medium-sized businesses and really focuses on sales productivity above everything else, helps salespeople close more deals. Um, originally from Greece, uh, born and raised in Germany, and then came to the U.S., uh, I think, 14 years ago now, uh, with a one-way ticket to San Francisco to start a tech company and change the world. That first company didn't quite work out as uh, as expected and planned. And then the second uh, startup that I attempted uh, through some twists and turns as well turned out quite all right, and that's the company that I'm running today, Close. And I'm probably mostly known for cursing on stage and, and helping founders figure out their, their sales approach. Not only cursing on stage, but delivering excellent talks at uh, conferences across the world. I think like, I mean, how often, uh, I, I probably mentioned it to you sort of last year, but you seem to be uh, constantly jetting around the world, speaking at, you, you know, every, every great conference uh, uh, that there is, in, in, including ours. Um, but uh, how, many, how many talks are you doing, uh, you know, per year? Or what was the, and what was the most that you've ever done in, in one year? So the most I've ever done was probably last year. Um, and it was, I think, uh, around 17 conferences um, and probably another 10 or so just like smaller events, workshops, meetups. Um, so it was close to like 30, a little above 30. Um, that was insane. I scaled this uh, back. So this year is probably going to be the year that I've done the least amount of speaking in the last couple of years. So this year, you know, I'm going to end the year with probably just uh, maybe 10 conferences or so. Um so it's a it's a constant balancing act, but yeah, I, I have in the last five years I've done an awful lot of speaking for sure. And actually, when when you were on the podcast four years ago, the company was Close.io. Now it's just Close. This is because you you recently bought the .dot com. Yes, we did. Uh, we did a rebrand earlier this year. Um, so we wanted to own the .dot com from day one. Right, uh, but it was not available, and so it it turned into this epic five and a half year negotiation um, where I had known the owner of the domain, and basically every three months I would follow up and be like, "Hey, how's life? Tell me about the news." And by the way, we still want to buy that domain um, for a, a, a variety of reasons, and so it took a really long time for that the the owner to be open to sell, and then for a long time for us to negotiate and get to a deal that was great for both both sides but we always wanted to own the .com especially the early days it was more kind of thinking about the future but eventually um, our business has become you know quite big we're not really a startup anymore in terms of the just the scale of the 
lot of customers that we have. Um, and uh, and so the .io is always kind of a little bit of a suggestion that you're just starting out, that this is a younger, smaller company. So just branding perspective-wise, it was not good. And Close is not really a name you can uh, trademark, although most of our customers would call us Close and not Close.io. And, uh, and so we were always wary that at some point somebody could just buy the domain that would compete with us or would use it to compete with us. So I want to make sure that that wouldn't happen. Peter Coppinger, CEO of Teamwork, basically spent all the money in, the, in his bank to buy teamwork.com uh, for, six, I think it was like 685,000 euros, probably. Did you pay more or less for Close.com? Euros to dollars, it's hard to say. So I'll tell you something. It was not that uh, unsimilar of a mile. So we didn't pay a lot more. We didn't pay a lot less. But we we probably got a lot better payment terms. So we we whatever the amount is, we didn't pay it in one in one payment, um, and we negotiated we negotiated a really good deal on the, on that end. Uh, we're able to because the the seller was over five years. We became actual friends, so we're able we're able to come up with a really good deal. Good stuff. And 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 close. Um, so uh, how how long have you been in operation? So Close launched in January 2013. So, you know, six and a half years now. Six and a half years. How many people in the company? So we just hired our 40th employee. Um, so we're 40 people, uh, fully distributed team. So we're in 13 different countries. Why did you go remote? Because have you been remote from, from day one? Almost. Um, so, so we started off as semi-remote, quote unquote. So we're six people. We're all in the Bay Area in Palo Alto. But... At almost no time were all people at the office. We had a lot of people traveling, a lot of people just working from coffee shops, and just rarely would um, even half the team be really in Palo Alto. And then we started hiring the best people we knew. Um, the first couple of hires were friends that we'd known for many years, and they just happened to not live in the Bay Area. Um, and eventually, it was you know it was half the team that was living in the Bay Area, half the team that was living all around the world. And that was the moment where we decided, right, we have to go one way or the, uh, the other. Either we're going to have to focus on building an HQ in the Bay Area and everybody that we hire lives here, um, or we go fully remote. Because we we were wary that doing this kind of some people are remote, some aren't, that that would create a lot of issues and wouldn't be the ideal model. And um, and when we, when we surveyed around the six people that were living in the Bay Area, do you plan to live here for the next five years? Like, you know... Four out of the six said, hell no, I'm planning to live somewhere else. And so we're like, well, what, what's the point of, uh, you know, having a headquarter here then? And so we went fully remote kind of in year two, I would say. Um, it was a conscious decision. We just, looking at the lifestyle we had, looking at the way the world evolved, we just believed that um, building a distributed team and a distributed company would be a better model and, and uh, turn out to be quite a good decision for us. Are you guys bootstrapped? Uh, did you raise any any money at all? So the answer is yes to both <laughs> both of these questions. We're in a we're in a weird kind of a little bit of a spot because we did raise a seed round. We went through Y Combinator and then we raised um, a significant seed round, uh, but then we became profitable and we never raised any more money. And so it's kind of this weird situation where we you know the the. Companies run and funded, uh, run by the three founders. That's the board. We don't have any investors on the board, uh, any external um, 
parties that are influencing how we run the business, what we do, and we are profitable and kind of running on the revenues that that we generate through our customers and don't really have any any need to for outside funding, which means that investors are you know throwing themselves at us every day. Um, but uh, but uh, so we're a little bit of both in in some weird way. I guess uh, across all of your content, your blog, your talks at conferences, and the multiple books that that you've written, you really kind of talk a lot and teach a lot around sales and uh, around how SaaS companies, how startups, uh, mid-sized companies can really you know grow their their sales and be better at sales. Obviously, that makes sense. I think in in respect of you know what the what the platform close is, and you have a new book out, if I'm uh, 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 correct. Tell us a little bit about why another book. What is this book called? What what it's about? Uh, what we're going to learn, you know, from reading that? Yeah. So uh, I've published. I think I've I've done like over ten books by now, right? So you're right. Why why another book? Um, so books have been a really a really useful tool for us because we have published an insane amount of content over the last six years. Um, and that content really is the foundation of which the company was built. That content is why we've built a really big audience and an audience that really cared about us and our brand. And that audience translated into people that wanted to purchase the product and got a lot of success with it and then told a lot of other people. So, so our philosophy has been very traditional in like, let's out-teach our competition versus, you know, spend them in ads. And we had a unique point of view that, that really resonated. And because we have so much content... For new people that discover us, it's sometimes really hard to organize that content, consume it, because it's just overwhelming. So books have been always a way for us to organize our content, to uh, clean it up, to focus it on specific topics and allow people that want to learn from us to choose what they want to focus on, what currently is the biggest challenge that they have and really get uh, hyper-focused information and very tactical advice about that topic in a couple of hours of reading. Um, and so the, the the reason why we kept writing books is that people kept overwhelmingly telling us that they loved the books and they shared it with people and they got a lot of value from it. The reason why we publish a new book that is more, it's not as focused on a specific channel or tactic, but it's kind of more an overall, a kind of updated startup sales playbook, right? It's called the 2020 Startup Sales Playbook. Um, we'd written a startup sales book the very first year that we started, and it felt like a lot had happened over the past five to six years. The world of selling, the world of startup selling had changed quite dramatically. So we wanted to do an update, and we wanted to do something that we'd never done before, which is um, invite a bunch of partners that we've built strong relationship with over the last couple of years and that had proven themselves to be just great teachers and people and companies and organizations that had a lot of skill and knowledge and have them invite them to actually contribute to the book. So this is the first time that we uh, didn't publish a book all on our own. We have Vidyard that helped uh, and and contributed to the book. We had uh, the great team, uh, you know, Aaron Ross uh, and the Predictable Revenue crew. We had the PandaDoc crew, Leadfuse. So we had a lot of just killer companies and teams that added to that playbook. And and the hope is to just help teams that are starting today get the most up-to-date information, get a playbook that they can apply um, to increase their chances of success when it comes to selling. Where can people find the the book? Yeah, the simplest way to do this is just send me an email, steli at close.com. Just say book, please, right? Uh, or SaaS Revolution book. And I'll know who you are. You'll get the book from me uh, directly uh, and for free. And you can get a link from me for all my other books as well. So the simplest way is just send me an email, steli at close.com. Say book, I'll know what you want and I'll, I'll get it to you. 
Awesome. Uh, and, um, you know, as you mentioned, like, you know, as you're just kind of starting out and, um, you know, obviously acquiring new customers uh, is, is key, right? Um, you know, amongst many things, you know, in, the, in that kind of, you know, first year of business. But this sort of early stage selling, you know, what is the what is some of the advice or key pieces of advice that you could like pick out from the book, um, you know, for founders that are listening uh, or, or for teams that are listening? Yeah, there's a there's a ton, but I'll start with the more kind of foundational, uh, kind of more attitude and philosophy stuff, and then I, I'm sure you're gonna work my you're gonna help me work our way to more tactical uh, things that people might want to know. But I think when we first start, like six years ago, we had to teach startups that selling is a good thing and they need to learn how to sell because there was the general philosophy that the world is changing and B2B SaaS is now going to be self-serve and it's all going to be virally growing and we don't need sales and eventually we won't need marketing. So uh, we, I think we, we were able to help like change minds about that and, and, te- and, and share to companies that selling is still a really important fundamental way of how people and how products get to market and how people purchase things. Um, I think today... One of the really important things that 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 we see that that startups struggle with is just to have a very pragmatic approach to selling, right? So if you don't have a background in sales, don't think that this is some magical thing that you cannot know anything about and that the way for you to approach it is just to hire people that have a background in that. If you're a founder, it doesn't matter if you're an engineering background, if you're a designer, you are a salesperson, right? You have to sell your product. You'll have to sell people to come and join work for you. You'll have to sell people to give you money to fund your dreams. You're going to have to sell the idea to customers. It doesn't matter if you sell well or not, but you are selling, right? So just get over yourself and don't go, oh, I'm not good at this. You know, just say I'm not as experienced at this. You don't have to become the world's best salesperson. You just have to learn the ABCs of selling and apply them to what you do. And you're going to have to do that either way. There's no way around this. I think the other thing is finding a good balance in terms of the culture that you're trying to create when it comes to selling. I think one of the reasons why startup founders uh, traditionally didn't love salespeople and sales is that selling has a bad rap for very good reasons. I think the old model of successful selling, kind of the 80s and 90s model of it was kind of the wolf of Wall Street, you know, what I call hostile strength-based selling, right? Um, hostile because the base premise is I want to go out there and take money from people, right? I want to get all the resources and all the money to enrich myself. I want to kill the competition. I'm out there to get everything you have into and transfer that into my pocket. And um, the, the reason why that model worked was not just because it was hostile, mainly because it came from a psychology of strength, right? So I oftentimes would bully people. People would bully people into submission to giving them money. Now, that model sucks because it just destroys value um, and goodwill. But it used to work uh, better in a world where I could, you know, somebody could go into a village, you know, scam people out of all their money and then take that money and go to the next village and <laughs> repeat the whole thing again. Today's world, this model still works, but it works less and less and less. Now, what do we do when something sucks is usually we overcorrect. So a lot of startups, when they were building their sales teams, they're like, I don't like this. So instead of having hostile and strong salespeople in a sales model, we're going to have friendly, weak salespeople, right? So you would think that friendly and weak people are like the, the most popular people in the world, but they aren't because we don't like weakness, right? So... Friendly is good, but weak is really bad. And, and so if you think about 
an, an example for you, you know, somebody friendly and weak, think about your least favorite arts teacher in second grade or something. Somebody, the type of person that apologizes for their existence, that always whispers, right? That was always like, uh, kids, I don't want to bother you, but could you stop throwing stones at each other? And then what do children do? They become monsters, right? That you throw things at that teacher, right? You're not listening. Why? Because there's something in the interdynamic social rules that we have established as human beings that says that if somebody acts incredibly weak, you have to take advantage of them, right? Or you have to run away from them because they're going to they, they pose a risk to your tribe, right? It's not an tr- attractive trait. So a lot of sales teams for startups have now developed this approach of we're just information providers. I'm just here to give you anything you want. You're the buyer. You need to make all decisions on your own and I'll never bother you about anything. That doesn't work. The right model is the model of friendly strength, right? You want somebody that's friendly, that wants to create value, that wants to help people, that wants to do right, that wants to be honest, but comes from a place of strength, of authority, of clarity, of confidence, right? Think about a great doctor, right? Somebody that's a subject matter expert. You want a great doctor to be somebody that's interested in your health, that's asking all the right questions, that's doing all the tests. You don't want to walk into the office and the doctor prescribes already you know, the medicine without saying hello to you. Right? without knowing anything about you. You want somebody that cares about your health. But once they've done all the tests, once they've asked all the questions, once they have a diagnosis, you don't want them to ask and debate. You want them to tell you what to do, right? You don't want somebody that's like, well, you maybe have cancer, but who knows? Cancer is a human concept. Maybe we don't understand it well, and some alternative medicines don't believe in it, and maybe you want to dance, or maybe you want to go and take medicine. Or you don't want to hear somebody giving you 5,000 options. You're not a medical professional. You want somebody that brings clarity and confidence into your life. And it's the same thing is true in in selling. So that's one of the big struggles that we're trying to help startups overcome is like how to create the right sales culture, find the right balance where they build sales teams that are honest, that have integrity, that want to create value, but they also build sales teams that are confident, that create clarity, and that help people make decisions and don't overwhelm people with information and then passively wait to see if something's going to happen. What is the point in which you start to build a sales team? So I agree, like 100% agree that, you know, the founder, CEO, the founder should be leading the sales for the first year, maybe even like, you know, up to two years. I, I, I led it for two years and then actually I kind of felt like, well, had I hired a salesperson earlier that was on it full time, maybe we would be, you know, double uh, revenue, you know, that, that year, right? But, uh, and actually when we hired somebody full time uh, uh, on sales for, for, for SaaS stock, then we actually then did see that we, we doubled our revenue, right? But for for like an early stage company, um, like I'm assuming like we close, if we look at your example, uh, I'm going to assume that you led sales uh, initially. Uh, at what point did you start to build out the the, the, the sales team? Yeah, so I think, um, I think that's a fantastic question. There's a few simple steps that I would take. The first step you're absolutely right is you sell yourself. Good, bad, ugly, messy, doesn't matter. You do it yourself, Right. Because what you want in the early days is as much customer intimacy as possible. You want to hear the objections, the problems. You want to feel the pain of trying to convince somebody. All these things are going to give you insights that are going to help you potentially change what you're doing, change how you present it, change what you're building, right? You need to be very close to the customer. Now, I would say that once you've closed, um, you know, it could even just be 10, 20 deals. Depending on the size, it'll be more or less depending on the kind of deal size that you're going after. Once you close, let's say, 10 deals that were closed in a 
fashion that you could potentially teach somebody else. So it was not your mother. It was not selling to your parents, right? And to your, your, your neighbors or your best friends, like to selling in a way that is repeatable to some degree, right? That you could teach somebody else to do. Um, once you got to the 10, 15 deal mark, I would say you could potentially transition bringing on salespeople. I would always hire pe- salespeople in, in doubles or triplets, right? Don't hire a single person. In the early days, people ask why. Why? Because if that person isn't performing, there's always going to be a big question mark, which is going to slow you down. You're not going to know, is it the salesperson? Is it me being a, a shitty sales manager? Is it our market? Is it our product? You're not going to really know why it isn't working. I guarantee you, if you bring in two people, even three people for the same sales position, you have all of them do the exact same thing. One of them is going to do better than the others, right? And that's going to teach you something about what kind of salesperson you have to hire, right? Uh, what kind of personality will do well for your market, your buyers? And so it speeds up the process. If all three, the great thing about selling is it's a revenue generating position. So if all three are killing it and are incredibly profitable, congratulations, just keep all of them, right? But again, you're now tripled the speed in which you're growing versus going super slow. So you want to bring in people and then you transition from being maybe not the world's best salesperson to now not being the world's best sales manager, right? So you go from founder-led salesperson to founder-led sales team. And all you try to do in the beginning is you try to see, can I teach somebody else to do the same actions I took and get similar results? That's all you're trying to accomplish is, okay, I've gotten some results that seem to be repeatable. Now, let me prove this by teaching some other people to do it and see if they can also do it. That's all. It doesn't have to be perfect. It doesn't have to be massively scalable. You don't have to figure out all the details. Once you get to that stage where you now have a small team and they're doing okay, even if they're not doing amazing, and they're bringing in revenue and sales, now you can go to step three, which is you went from selling yourself, teaching others how to sell, to now bringing in a junior sales leader, somebody that's been a sale, somebody that's visited your future, been one or two years ahead of where you are, that maybe was the first salesperson somewhere else, then became a sales manager there. And you bring that person in, you say, hey, here's the team I have. It's not perfect yet. Here's the sales process we have. It's not perfect yet. You've been in a company that's been two years ahead of us in terms of revenue, sales process, sales team. Come in here and improve on which what we've built. Like, make it better. And that person is going to snap into action immediately and be like, oh, I know what to do. <laughs> like, let's fix X, Y, and Z. Let's improve this. Let's hire these people. And they're going to take the bowl and run with it. And then once that team is rocking and rolling and it's doing well, then you can really start entertaining the idea of step four, which is bringing a senior sales leader, somebody that's been a VP of sales, somebody that's going to know how to take the one or two sales managers and scale to multiple office, open offices, uh, have commission plans, recruiting plans, you know, uh, training plans, career paths, like setting up the architecture to scale a massive sales organization. But that's really the last step. And that, unfortunately, still today, is the step that a lot of startups make a step one. It's like, I don't know anything about sales. Let me go and hire a VP of sales of some company and, and try have them figure out all my problems. And once you've got this team, uh, let's assume this is kind of a year or two down the line, uh, you've got a couple of SDRs, uh, um, you know, a couple of salespeople and uh, maybe a junior kind of sales manager. Um, around like, you know, you know, sales is one of these, uh, I, I guess, sort of like professions that is, is you, you know, often kind of really kind of impacted around motivation, right? So, you know, when you're crushing it, motivation's high, and then the deals seem to be kind of rolling in, 
and then there's you, you know there's a blip right and for whatever reason you, you know something kind of happens and nothing's coming in that month and then the sales guy or girl you know gets demotivated and that can perhaps the demotivation then impacts you know into the other kind of team members like what what do you do around like monitoring sales motivation uh, like levels uh, and then trying to kind of improve motivation and then culture like within the, the, the sales teams to kind of help them be, you, you know, consistent top performers, consistently motivated. Yeah, so uh, my, my answer is going to be a bummer for a lot of people, but it's the, the, the truth. It's just like if somebody asked me how to lose weight, I'd be like, I don't know, eat broccoli and work out until you sweat, right? Like just move your body and put good stuff in it. Like I, I just go for the basics here. And this is the same answer I give to people that ask me, how do you hire all these remote people and know, like a lot of CEOs, how do you know that these people really work, right? That's not my issue. Here's how I do it. The, I make sure I hire people that are insanely emotionally and mentally tough and then incredibly self-driven, right? Because then I have to do a lot less work motivating them, right? Because if you have to motivate people consistently on your sales team, it's just going to be a lot harder to do this, especially for a startup. Now, if you are like a multi-level marketing firm and all you do is bring in people, make them really, really excited, motivated for a couple of weeks, get as much money and value out of them as possible, it's a totally different model. But in a startup, you have a million problems. If you have to like, if you have to be the personal motivation coach of every single salesperson that you have every single day, it's going to rub so much attention and energy. You're never going to get, you know, everything else done that you need to. So you have to be very, very, you have to set very high standards on who you hire. Right, people can have a lot of flaws, but here are the flaws that can't have in your sales team. You cannot hire people that are emotionally unstable, so that are like super pumped one day and then really, really depressed the other. That's not going to work. You can't hire people that need to be like you know where you have to like uh, pump them up every day because they can't do that on their own. And you can't have people that um, that cannot deal with what I call like being punched in the face every day emotionally. Right, sales. Selling is not uh, mentally that complicated of a task. It is emotionally incredibly taxing. That's it. Like, that's it. The art of performing, of being a high performer in selling, it means every morning controlling your state, no matter how depressed you are, no matter how stressed you are, no matter how burned out you are, no matter how many problems you have or fights or things going on in your life, you snap into a state of mind that's focused, that's confident, that's high energy, and you go and you perform every single day, no matter how you feel. That's tough. Like, that's not something everybody can do. So I try to hire the right people because then everything else is much, much easier. So hire people and ask people, are they dealt with really difficult times in their lives? Uh, tell them uh, you know, how they felt and what they did when they had the biggest deal close in their life and how they felt and what they did when they had the biggest deal fall through, right? Just try to ascertain how do they deal with high highs and low lows? Um, what motivates them? Ask them. And if they're like, well, what motivates me is you know, uh, when people are excited around me. When I, if everything they say about their motivation is externally driven, that's a problem versus people that have this insane, unexplainable internal drive that they can't control. And all you have to do is you have to channel it, right? Teach them how to sell your product and channel it to do it right. So hire really, really motivated people. And then, of course, you still want to do things to to excite your team. Selling is just like a team sport. No matter if you're the best athlete in the world, you're going to have a coach that's going to do things to try to like focus you, pump you up at times. So um, one thing that really drives salespeople and makes them excited is to be um, competitive, even with people that are they're friendly with, even with their team, teammates. So run competitions. 
have transparency that shows who is performing how and why, that's going to be a huge driver. Great salespeople are people that want to be number one, that want to see themselves go up the ranks, that want to be compared with others. Uh, they, they want to compete, right? So give them chances to compete. Um, give them chances to shine. So when they do really well, like highlight that. Highlight the behavior that you want to have. Like when somebody just lost a massive deal and then they showed up early and they did their job, highlight that, right? Talk about that. Um, praise that because that's going to make make them know what kind of behavior is rewarded in this environment. And that's going to make them model that behavior. And similarly, when somebody crushes it and closes a really complicated, difficult deal and does something really creative or really emotionally astute to make that deal happen, bring that up, highlight that, reward that. And then there's a lot of just create a culture that is fun. It might be competitive, but not toxic, right? It's not just like doggy dog, but it's much more of a professional team of people that really want to work together, but also want to be excellent and want to push each other to be excellent and are excited about being working with other people that will push them and challenge them to be excellent. That's the kind, if you want to create a, a team of winners, right? And, and when you have that kind of winning mentality and culture through the highs and lows, through some times that are more difficult, easier, it's going to help everybody kind of raise their game up because everybody else expects excellence of them and displays excellence to them, right? So that's kind of a very... It's the best tool that I know to make a team self-correct through all the difficult times. Do you, do you do any like psychometric sort of tests like during the the interview phase to kind of, I guess, get the profile of the, uh, the a closer? Yeah, uh, no, uh, we don't. Um, I we're currently even as a company as a whole, we're looking to. I've talked to some founders that I really respect that do this for all their employees, and so we. I was a big fan of, of those tests for a while. Then I became very cynical about these tests and kind of got, got, got over them. And so now we're, as a company, looking back into this topic and going, is this maybe a useful tool for people? Should we consider this? But I don't have a great track record or a track record at all of like using this to evaluate salespeople, to be honest, no. Yeah, no, I have a reason. I was, I was speaking to a former boss uh, of mine this morning and He's now running an organization, 98 people, and, you know, he was talking about the, the challenges that, you know, you have around hiring and people, um, and he's a, an advocate of psychometric tests, and he's saying that, you know, you might interview somebody uh, that is, like, really brilliant at interview, but then if they go, you know, through the psychometric tests, and actually then they're not... They're, they're not answering uh, or, or they're giving their kind of responses that are not matching like the top like performers like within the company and that because they have this like bucket of like you know who would you want to cut clone you know within the company and if, if these people are not you know giving the same responses even if they're really good in, in the interview process they won't hire them and you know he seems to think that that kind of really works and has been very kind of strong for for, for him yeah i could totally see that i know that alex uh one of the founders of clearbit that clearbit their entire team is doing this um heaton and i had a discussion about this and heaton is using this in a lot of his teams and companies so i know a lot of people that i truly respect that that have used this hence why i started looking into it again is like maybe this is something that I've gotten too cynical about, and maybe it can be a useful tool if you use it correctly. Um, but I have not done it yet uh, in my company, so can't speak from firsthand experience. Well, um, going to so like, obviously again, like sticking with the early early stage. So literally, when you, I guess you're, you're just getting started, and we've seen so like we we're running these SaaS locals now, like all over the world, which are like um, you, you know meetups like powered by SaaS uh, you know, with great speakers in the uh, in the evenings, and uh, I've I've been. 
fortunate to go to the the Helsinki and Brussels and, and London one sort of recently. Um, and uh, we've had uh, like a, kind of like a startup teardown um, at each time where the, the startup's going on stage, they've created this, you know, interesting SaaS product. Uh, and then they're just figuring out, like, how do we go to market, right? What is the model? What is the pricing model? And, and, and things like that. So when, when you're getting started, and I've seen some, like, real interesting pitches and people just obviously, uh, and a lot of advice given where people uh, on stage said, actually, this is, this is a better idea, um, you, you know, in terms of going to market. Um, we'll take that on board and, uh, uh, and apply that. But when you're, when you're that early, when you've never run a SaaS company when you've never done sales before, never really kind of done go to market, you know, what is the best way, you know, or advice that you can give as to whether you should be doing inbound, outbound, you know, hybrid, um, you, you know, how do people decide? It's a good question. So, um, so first of all, I, I think that it's important to be very pragmatic and have always have all the options on the table, right? Don't don't start off building your company with like your dogmatic worldview of how you'd like the world to be, right? Just look at the world how it is and decide what, where are my customers? How do they buy? How do they communicate? And then look at the channels that work best to reach them. Um, and you can attack that in multiple ways. One is just to go into the shoes of your buyer and ask how they would like to buy and how they in reality are buying. Sometimes it's the same thing. Sometimes it isn't. Look at your competitors. How do they sell? That's probably years and years of you know, a lot of hard work in trying to figure out how to be successful in those spaces. So not everything your competitors are doing is crazy and dumb. Some things might be, but not all of them. So look at that. And then look internally and just go... Is there something where we have internal expertise, where we have skills, knowledge, right? Where we could just start much faster or get much more results in versus other areas. Maybe you want to prioritize based on that. So everything should always be on the table. Typically, inbound is a much longer game, right? Because it's not necessarily something that if you publish a blog post the next day, there's going to be you know hundreds or even thousands of people coming, signing up and buying your product. There's exceptions again for that, uh, but but mostly it's kind of a long game that you have to play that compounds very slowly. Outbound in the early days, I find can be a really great supplement. Even if, it could even be exclusive in what you do because you don't have to wait around. You can go to the type of people you think um, you've built your product for and get information. Um, but in the very early days, you might want to have a, a very pragmatic approach. Here's a, an approach that I've taught a lot of people, and it's always useful. It doesn't always result in sales, but it's o- always a great way to start. Ask yourself, who is your ideal buyer? Right? Who, who are you building this for? Reach out to these people, but don't reach out and say, I have something. Can I sell it to you? Right? Reach out to them and say, I'm building something. You're an expert in this field. Can I get advice about our technology? Crazy thing is nobody wants to buy anything, but everybody wants to give advice. Everybody wants to be an expert. So people are going to be very excited about jumping on a call with a founder to get an early look at the technology and be an advisor and give feedback, right? People are excited about that. And so what you do is you jump on a call and you honestly show them what you build, why you build it. You tell them you build it for people like them. And then you shut up and ask, ask questions, shut up and learn, right? Is this useful? Would you use this? What is problematic about it? You ask all these important questions. And then eventually, you don't just ask questions about them as a customer or user. You ask them, you know, founder and business questions. Hey, if you were my co-founder, 
How would you market this? How do I get my first 10 customers? How would you pitch it? Where would you advertise? How would you price this? Like you just get advice from them on how to price, how to go to market, how to do all these things. Now, if the call is incredibly critical and everything they tell you is that you suck and what you do sucks, probably it doesn't make sense to try to close the deal, right? Probably it makes sense to just ask, are there other people that are as smart as you that I should talk to to get more advice, get more feedback? So at least you get some referrals and you stay in touch with that person. But if it is a positive conversation, if they see some value, some promise in what you do, you should just ask, hey, what would it take for me you know, to sell you on this? What would it take for you to be a first customer? Right? What we, we have to do after you learned all these things? And you'll be surprised uh, you know, um, how many times that can lead to a, you know what? Uh, I really like it, but it wouldn't be for us because this doesn't work. The budget, our decision making. And again, what you're getting now is real insights, really juicy information that you can use to learn about how to go to market, to learn about how to acquire customers, to learn how to pitch. And if what you've built is truly valuable, a bunch of these kind of early conversations will lead to them becoming customers. A bunch of them will lead to them connecting you to your customers, to future customers. And a bunch of them will just lead to people that become advisors, right? That give you feedback. In the worst case, you had a 15, 20-minute conversation. You didn't learn that much. Um, but that's a really great approach to get started really, really fast. And now if somebody is like, well, but I don't know any of these buyers. If I reach out cold, will they uh, take calls from me? You'll be surprised. You will be surprised. If you ask for advice for the technology you're building for this space and they're an expert, a lot of people will open up um, their calendar for 15 minutes to give some advice and take a sneak peek. And that can be a great way to just get started and learn. You're um, you're coming back to to, to Sastock in Dublin for I think it's the the, the third year now, uh, and um, uh, like you you're one of the hardest working speakers I, I think you know across the the conference. Uh, if if I can remember last year, you you were doing like four or five sort of like different talks and workshops, and um, you you know must have. Uh, uh, had some sort of like private lane through the Dublin city to navigate the traffic <laughs> to get from A, a to B. But um, uh, what what can we expect to uh, hear from you this year? What is your talk going to be about? What are you, what are you doing at, at Sastock? Yeah, so I'm doing two things. Uh, and, and by the way, congrats on Sastock, man. When we first talked, that I think when I was first on the podcast, Sastock didn't exist at least maybe as an idea, but it didn't exist in reality, right? So it, it's been amazing to see your journey and what you've built. It's truly uh, one of my favorite conferences uh, on this planet. So, uh, uh, you know, great work on that. Uh, this year, there's going to be two things that are confirmed. There's a bunch of other things that are in the works. But one is I'm going to give a sales workshop, um, kind of super tactical, practical, solving people's problems that are there, um, looking at people's cold emails, uh, negotiation, pitches, demos, whatever it is, and helping them with a few practical tips to improve what they do and get instant results from it. So there's going to be a sales workshop with me at SaaS Talk. And there's going to be a little talk that's going to be unusual. Uh, my SaaS talk, talks have always been a, around selling in one way or another. But this year, it's going to be a bit different. I'm going to actually talk about the lies that we tell ourselves as founders, um, the lies we tell ourselves and others. And because I found that once we, if we're really in touch with the bullshit stories we tell ourselves and others, um, and we can get rid of them, that's kind of the biggest thing that stands in the way of between us and a massive success is usually some lie, some bullshit reality we want to believe in that's not true. And so I'm going to uh, dig deep and bring out some really dark secrets and hopefully make everybody in the audience um, kind of find one thing that they might have been telling themselves and others that's just not true, that they need to get over with to really progress and see the change and, and growth that they want to 
want to have and that they deserve for their business. Awesome. Well, looking forward to that. I know that, um, uh, like, like yourself, uh, like Patrick Campbell, uh, you know, also speaks at, you, you know, uh, many of the same conferences. Um, and, you, you know, he speaks a lot about sort of pricing. You speak a lot about sales. But I think both of you this year, or seemingly yourself, and, and I'm pretty sure Patrick as well, will be doing something a little bit different. So that's, uh, that, that, that's good to see. Um, two, two final questions, uh, Steli. Um, one, uh, apart from your own books, what is your favorite sales book? Uh, that you can uh, recommend or a good one that you can recommend? I always hate that question because I, I can't give a great recommendation uh, on a sales book. I mean, there's probably tons and tons of great ones, but I'm just not a great consumer of sales books. So I don't don't feel super pumped about recommending them. But I'll give you a, a book recommendation, nonetheless, one that a lot of people uh, probably don't have not never heard before, which is uh, Wherever You Go, There You Are from John Kabat-Zinn. Uh, it's a mindfulness book, but it's not... It's very different from most mindfulness books, and I find that a lot of founders love that book. Uh, I've gifted it to many, many great people. Super short. It's small little chapters, two, three pages, and it's just written so beautifully and it's very, very impactful. So uh, one of the my favorite, all-time favorite books to recommend. Okay. And how do you stay healthy and sane on your journey? You look like a guy that... That works out. I think did I, I saw something uh, online, like a photo of you doing Mai Tai or something like that in uh, in Thailand. So how, how do you stay healthy and sane as you as you build closed? Yeah. So for the past five years, it's definitely been uh, martial arts. So Muay Thai is a, a huge love and passion. I never been I I'd never been in a gym or done any sports in my life for the first thirty one years of my life. Um, and then I became a father and I gained like uh, ten kilograms and I was having back pain picking up my baby. And that was the moment where I was like, all right, I need to snap out of this, I need to do something. And it's really saving my life right now. There's so many stressful days where if I couldn't go to Muay Thai, I couldn't go to training, um, I would really have a tough time to, to kind of mentally stay focused and sane. So, yeah, I found – here's my advice. So, you know, not just go and do sports. If you can, like experiment, explore different things until you find something that is fun. It's something that you're actually excited about. It could be playing tennis, could be, I don't know, playing a, a basketball, whatever it is. It doesn't have to go, go going to the gym and doing, you know, a, a weightlifting exercise. Although if that's fun, do that. But find something that's athletic, that's physical, that is actually fun to you for whatever reason, because then you're going to love going and doing it um, versus having another to-do task that needs resistant overcoming to do. So for me, it's definitely been martial arts that's uh, keeping me sane for sure. Yeah, well, we 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 share uh, the, the, the same uh, thing in that uh, as soon as uh, we we had kids, I put on ten kilos, and then I found my child really heavy, and I was like, <laughs> "This this this can't be good." So uh, I'm now also hitting the gym and uh, am able to kind of pick up my children, but I'm still finding it difficult to 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 shed the kilos. It must be replacing the fat with muscle, but uh, uh, that, that's what I'd like to say. But Steli, um, really great talking to you as always. Um, you know, so glad that you uh, gave up some time to to come back to the SaaS Revolution show uh, to share your your sales knowledge, um, you know, with our audience. And uh, yeah, I'm I'm so excited for for, for next month for SaaS Doc 19. October the 14th to the 16th and uh, uh, to see you in Dublin um, and I'm sure we'll uh, we'll find some time to, to grab a pint of Guinness. Alex, thank you so much. It was uh, so much fun to be back on the on the podcast. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the SaaS Revolution Show and you picked up valuable lessons from Steli. 
see him live and hordes of other sales superstars, uh, grab your ticket for SASDOC 19, October the 14th to the 16th, taking place in Dublin, Ireland, now at sasdoc.com. Thanks for listening. See you next time, or even see you in Dublin in a couple of weeks. Bye.